Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about Redemption, you can go to redemptionseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. Again, welcome to Redemption. Uh, my name's Alex, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And so, uh, yeah, if you have a Bible or an app, go ahead and scroll or turn there to Revelation 2, 18 to 29 that you just heard Samantha read uh, as we're going to be continuing our series through uh, the first seven churches addressed by Jesus in the book of Revelation. So we entitled this series Hold Fast because that's precisely what Jesus continues to say again and again to his churches, to those who are persevering, those who are hanging on to he and the gospel in spite of temptation, in spite of being persecuted and so on. Jesus is encouraging his churches. And he also, throughout these letters, has some very very severe things to say, some very harsh warnings and even judgments and condemnations of those who would claim to follow him and yet deny him with their lifestyles. And so we're journeying through these words of Jesus and seeking to, the, to apply them here in our context. Um, so before we go any further, as you just heard the scripture read, it's a, it's a, a very serious scripture. They're all serious, but as you can just hear uh, the weight of these words today, I just want to just pray uh, just for myself and for all of us here this morning as we journey through God's word to us. So let's just pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, we revere you as the Son of God. Sinless, perfect, holy, spotless. You are right about everything at all times and in all places. You are the truth. You are the way. You are the life. Would you help me now to be faithful to you? And help me to love my brothers and sisters today. We pray now, Holy Spirit, that you come, comfort, speak to, guide, convict, correct, and empower us. Thank you for hearing our prayers this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for your righteousness. We pray this in your good name. Amen. All right, so as you're scrolling to... Or I say scrolling now, flipping to, scrolling in an app, whatever. Uh, if you're going there to Revelation 2, we're looking at the church of Thyatira. And I'll tell you just a little bit about uh, this city and the author itself. Uh, so Jesus is speaking here. He, he says, I'm saying these things. But he's dictating these words to the apostle John. John uh, walked with Jesus for a number of years, and he was Jesus' closest friend. Uh, John is the one that laid his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper, just before Jesus was betrayed, crucified, and then resurrected. John is receiving this revelation from Jesus roughly 60 years after Jesus ascended back into heaven. So if you're 
you're not a Christian, you don't know anything about the Christian faith. We believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he literally died, was buried, resurrected from the grave. That's what we celebrate on Sundays and Easter especially, right? And that Jesus ascended back into heaven. 60 years later, in roughly AD 90, Jesus appears to John as John has been banished to the island of Patmos as he's been persecuted for proclaiming that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. You can read that in John's gospel and John chapter 14, verse 6. So Jesus is dictating his word to his churches, and he's speaking in a really interesting way, whereas Revelation, as you know, reads different from everything else in in the four gospels. That in the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking, and John is writing in what's known as an apocalyptic genre. And so what you see Jesus doing And as John pens, he has no problem reaching back into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and he will grab people, events, images, stories, accounts, events, and so on, and take those things and then recycle those according to his own person and work, showing that he is the fulfillment of all that God was pointing through to through from Genesis chapter one up to where he is here being recorded in the book of Revelation. And so if you try to read the book of Revelation devoid of the Old Testament, it's going to just be a mess, an absolute mess because Jesus didn't come devoid of the Old Testament. Rather, he came fulfilling the Old Testament. So that's why he'll take things and you'll hear things from the book of Psalms or from Daniel or from Noah. Or, and you go, where is all, these, all this stuff coming from? Why is there a rainbow around God's throne? What, what is all that stuff? All of it's bound up in the Old Testament. So John's recording these words of Jesus to this church of Thyatira. And so The church of Thyatira receives the most words. He speaks roughly 40 more words to the church of Thyatira than to any of the other churches. So this is the fourth of the seven churches being addressed. It's the smallest church. It's the least influential church. And it's the church with the most problems. It's the one that gets into, well, if you read it, it's into bed with the devil himself. It's as bad as it can possibly be. So Thyatira is in uh, the city in Turkey today known as Akisar. And so it's the fourth, if you pull it up here, so you can see kind of how Jesus is addressing the churches beginning in Ephesus, then up to Smyrna, then over to Pergamum. And then now you move a little to the east. That's roughly 30 miles away, the church of Thyatira, as Jesus is now speaking to this church. So this is this church, the fourth church is, again, it's not the most important it's not the biggest, biggest, it's not the most prominent. Rather, it's, it's small, but it's, it's worth addressing. And um, so let me tell you just a little bit about it really quickly. So the church itself, or the city itself, was rather conquered in, in AD, or BC, rather, uh, 190 BC by Alexander. Um, it's founded in the Lycus Valley. And this city, in particular, uh, did not, well, like I said, it, it was dedicated basically to manufacturing and marketing. And we'll talk about those things in just a moment. But the way it worked in the Roman Empire, it was more or less a buffer city. That is, when people would come from, uh, from the east to attack the city of Pergamum, most of the time was the, the more prominent city, the bigger city, the, the more famous city. When they would come to attack, the church of Thyatira was more or less like a buffer city. It's 30 miles away, and it gets smashed and rebuilt and smashed and rebuilt and smashed and rebuilt over and over again. Even up to modern times, this is kind of how this particular city has worked as it has served as a buffer city trying to protect Pergamum. So as it gets destroyed... 
they would send word back to Thyatira saying, or, to, or from Thyatira to, to Pergamum saying, hey, uh, we're under attack, get ready. And then that's how, that's more or less kind of how the, the city functions. So uh, I'll tell you just a little bit about kind of what I said a moment ago, marketing and, and manufacturing. Um, while the city wasn't busy defending and rebuilding itself, it primarily functioned uh, in, in uh, bronze smithing. And in fact, I'll just read you a few of the things that it did. Uh, wool workers, linen workers, makers of garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, tra- slave traders, bronze smiths. So there's a lot of, uh, of artifacts from the first century showing that what this city was actually committed to doing. And so those are some of them. But the primary thing was manufacturing wool, textiles, and dyeing them in beautiful colors. The most famous color that was sought after in the first century was the color purple. So you can insert your dog's joke or whatever, you know. So anyway, or you dub. All right. So, uh, but it was the, the color that was sought after. And the way they would go about doing this was pretty crazy. So basically you would get the color purple, one from a particular root that grew in the region. And then the other way, the more common way, and it was extremely expensive and costly to do this, comes from uh, a small shellfish uh, called the murex. So it's kind of, a, kind of a snail, and they smash this shell open, get the snail, cut the, this one gland, and they would extract a couple of drops of purple. And this is where this color would come from. It would take roughly six pounds of purple dye to dye one pound of wool. And this was sought after. This was the color. It was only worn by basically royalty. So Pliny would would have worn purple. Uh, Alexander the Great wore purple. Of course, the emperor wore purple. Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm the son of God, by the way. And as Jesus introduces himself to this church as the son of God, this this particular city uh, was known for worshiping Apollo, the sun god. And the emperor actually took on the name Apollo himself so that he would be known as the son of God incarnate on the earth. So Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm the, I'm the God of the sun and I'm the God of all, all reigning over. So that's a little bit about the city of Thyatira. It's also the city where uh, if you read the book of Acts, you can read about it, Acts chapter 16, the woman Lydia. She, she's actually from this city and she goes down to the city of Philippi and it's there where she's selling purple garments and she actually hears the apostle Paul preach the gospel in person. She believes the gospel, converts and goes back to Thyatira. She's likely the person that was responsible for planting the church there. So there's just a little bit about it. So with that being said, we're gonna just jump right into the text. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay. I think we're just going to, in order to finish the sermon today, we're just going to go without notes because it's, um, <laughs> because it's just enormous. So we're just going to go, yeah, just from the text. So he says, uh, he's the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet are burnished like bronze. Okay, so the son of God, when Jesus declares, I'm the son of God, he's saying, I am not less than God. I'm not afterthought of God. I'm not a plan B of God. I'm one with God. I was there with God in the beginning of creation of all things. I reign and rule over everyone and everything at all times. And my word is true and it's final and authoritative in all times and all places for all people. That's what Jesus is communicating. It's wildly offensive. 
offensive, especially in a post-truth, post-Christian culture like ours, and yet Jesus will come on the scene and unapologetically say, I'm the son of God. Me and me only. And then he says this, this image that's applied to Jesus, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. When, when John is getting this image of Jesus with his eyes burning like fire, it's a way of saying that he has a penetrating gaze that can see beyond all the posturing, all the hiding, all the politicking, all the manipulating, all the stuff, all the fig leaves that we hide behind. John's saying Jesus is the son of God and sees through. He sees through all of us. He has eyes like a flame of fire. This is also hearkening back to the book of Daniel. If you go back and read Daniel chapter three, you've got the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the, the faithful Hebrews who would not bow down before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had erected. Remember this? And Nebuchadnezzar says what? I'm, well, I'm gonna, if you don't bow down, I'm going to persecute you. I'm gonna actually put you to death. I'm gonna throw you in a furnace, heats it up seven times, right? And then what do they do? He throws the faithful Hebrews into the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looks down and the men are in the furnace, not being burned to death. And he says what in Daniel 3? Behold, I see a fourth one in there. One that looks like the son of God. So now we have Jesus speaking to a church undergoing temptation and persecution like a furnace. And he's saying, I'm present again to those who hold fast and will not be consumed. Eyes like a flame of fire. It's also written over in Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel describes Yahweh. It says his eyes are like two torches and his feet are like, and his legs are like bronze. So John is going, this is the one. This is the one Daniel saw. This is it. Eyes like fire, seeing through everything. This is who our Jesus is. That Jesus is never informed about anything going on in the world. He knows it all. He sees it all. He is over all. Eyes like fire. Feet like bronze. This is an image of a trampling warrior. The one who has conquered. If you go look at early artifacts in the first century, oftentimes emperors or rulers would have been depicted as standing on the necks of an enemy with bronze feet. Jesus has conquered. These are the same feet that were pierced on Good Friday are now standing and reigning and ruling because Easter is real. So this is why we worship Jesus. <laughs> like, wow. So he says this to the church. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. So your love and faith, these are these inward commitments and feelings and, right, your love and your faith. I know that. And it's led to what? Serving and patiently enduring. This inward belief, this inward love, this inward faith has translated itself outwardly in acts of service and and enduring. And that your latter works exceed the first. That the, the stuff you have, you've gotten even more faithful in your serving. You've gotten more faithful in, perse, in persevering under severe persecution. Unlike the church in Ephesus that started, you know, with the first love and drifted away, it's the other way around here. That they've increased in their serving and increased in their persevering. But then he says, but I have this against you, 
that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Okay, so this woman Jezebel, who is this woman Jezebel? You can read about it in the Old Testament, First Kings with the king Moab, right? Where this woman comes in and deceives the king, seduces the king, teaches him and instructs him to participate in fornication. And so Jesus now takes this word, Jezebel, and applies it, saying there's a prophetess among the, in the church. And so some think that there might actually be a woman named Jezebel, but more, more likely, it's, it's likely that it is a person or a group of people who have now embraced this theology known as antinomianism. That's what we call it today. It's, ba- it's what it means, anti, against, nomos, law, against the law, meaning this, that it's, it's a way of presuming upon the grace of God and abusing the grace of God. Because God loves me, because God forgives me, because Jesus died for me, I'm allowed to do whatever I want. Jesus purchased my life as it is, so I, I'm good to go. That's what antinomianism is. And the gospel comes against that fiercely. The gospel is not Jesus purchasing us so that we have a free license to sin. The gospel purchased us, brought us into the family of God that we might walk in freedom in the gospel from sin. Does that make sense? That the gospel is not something that gives us good news, like, oh, good news. Now I can just go back to the way I was living before I met Jesus. No, 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 no. And this comes up in a number of churches in the New Testament going, well, I mean, God will forgive me. I can just charge it to the cross. It's not that big of a deal. And Jesus comes out of heaven and addresses that post-resurrection going, please don't be confused here. Please don't think for a moment that because I died on a cross and resurrected from the grave that now you can just live however you want and believe whatever you want. If I am your savior, I am your Lord and I have a vision and a plan and a will for how I want you to live your life as my disciples. All right. So Jesus says, so there's this woman or a group of teachers, this Jezebel or Jezebels that are teaching, that are seducing my people to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. So she was teaching this. It was an assumed thing that God will forgive you. It's fine. It's like just, just you can accommodate to our lifestyle. You can accommodate to our culture. And so as you know, the Roman world was not accustomed to, to practicing the way Christians practice our sexuality. It was very wild, very open. And so there were, in some cases, there is temple prostitution. We don't know if this particular church was actually going as far as engaging in temple prostitution, but whatever it was, the morality had been relaxed so much so that Jesus is going, no, 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 I need to address this head on, that I, I, I have a way that I want my people to live. And so if you don't know what the scriptures say, um, the scripture teaches very clearly what God wills for us as men and women who claim to follow him regarding our sex and our sexuality. And so Jesus calls his church to repent of abusing God's grace in regards to how we use our bodies. That our bodies matter. Our bodies reflect the conditions of our souls. 
Jesus cares very much so with what we do with our bodies, not just what we believe theologically, but that ought to translate even physically. So this woman is teaching the church to participate in sexual morality and to eat food that was offered to to, to idols. This is, by the way, if you go read, this, these are the things that, that the church in Acts chapter 15 addressed at the Jerusalem Council. If you go read it, that's precisely what they said. Here's the only things that we're going to do. As they look at the Old Testament law, this is what the apostles agreed on. Do not eat food sacrificed to idols and do not participate in this sexual immorality stuff. This church has just dove all the way in. They weren't even thinking about, like, maybe this is wrong, maybe we shouldn't. They're just going along with it. And Jesus is furious over it. And what we're about to read is some hard words from Jesus. Perhaps the hardest words, he says, in the New Testament. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I'll throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I'll strike her children dead. So before we proceed, I know these words are very hard to hear, um, but this is why we read all of God's word, and not just Parts of God's word. That is, God is not only love. Scripture says it, it's crystal clear, First John, God is love. First John chapter four. But scripture also makes it abundantly clear that God is holy and it's just as true. And that what a right reading of scripture and a right view of Jesus presented in the gospel itself presents God as holy and as love, and we don't take one attribute and use that attribute to blur the other one or cancel the other one out. So it's easy to go, well, God is holy, and we live in a dreadful fear. Or we can go, God is love, and we can presume grace. What scripture calls us to is that God is both holy and he is loving, that he is savior, but Jesus is presented here as judge. And so he speaks with great authority as judge. So he says, I gave her time to repent. By the way, think of the grace of God in this, the grace Jesus extends right here. I gave her time to repent. This person that's come into the church and has absolutely made a wreck of the church, breaking God's heart, breaking God's will, breaking commandments, and breaking relationships. I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to repent. That's unbelievable. That Jesus would give this person or this teacher, this false teacher, time to repent. It reminds you of uh, Pharaoh. Remember this one? When God sends Moses to go and rebuke Pharaoh and say, you need to let my people go. And each time Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, I'm not letting your people go. Every time Moses goes before Pharaoh, that is grace. Going, If you don't, a plague is coming. If you don't, a plague is coming. Here it is again. I gave her time to repent. I gave her time. The word repent, by the way, means to make an about face, 
to literally change. It's not just, I, I, I agree in a way that God is right and I'm wrong. No, repentance is actually a way that it translates into how we actually live our real lives. My Papa Walt told me and Jana this a few years ago. He, goes, he, he said, Jana, Jana, do you know what repentance looks like? Repentance looks like change. Repentance looks like change. When you, when you do agree with God and you agree with God to such a degree to go, I don't like what this is demanding of me and my lifestyle right now and I'm gonna have to make some changes, but I agree with you. I agree with who you are and what you said, regardless of how I feel, whether it does or doesn't come natural to me. I agree, I repent, I about face, and I go in another direction. Martin Luther said in the first thesis, right, of the 95 Theses, what does he say to the Christians? All of life is one of repentance. All of life. This is something that none of us ever outgrow doing. That as we walk with Jesus, have you noticed this over your years with walking with Jesus, is that you keep repenting? Did you repent today? Yeah, probably this morning. Yeah. And yesterday? Yeah. When you're driving in your car? Yeah. What is that? Didn't I already say I'm sorry? Yeah. And yet, as the closer you get to the light, the more muck we find on ourselves. So we keep on repenting. Until when? Until we get to heaven. Until we're glorified. Until we're perfected. We keep walking in repentance. And I'll tell you, church, if you want to see God show up in our church or in any church you're ever a part of, if you want to see the church that God moves in powerfully, it is always tied to repentance with finally agreeing with him, without just giving him lip service and saying, you're good and you're holy, but going, you're, you're absolutely right and I'm gonna, I'm gonna strive by grace and by your spirit to respond and live accordingly. That's the place God shows up. The Holy Spirit, guess what he will lead us into? <laughs> Holiness. I know, I know, you didn't see that one coming. So he gives her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. She refuses. I'm not going to make her. I'm not going to coerce her. She refuses. So our judge says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. Commentators are quick to point out that Jesus says, I'm going to afflict her with sickness, being that she has now made his church sick. Jesus is now going to afflict her with sickness. I'm going to throw her onto a sick bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw into great tribulation. This, this idea of Jesus calling it adultery, this is, this is how bound up Jesus is with his people going, I genuinely care what you believe about me. I genuinely care what you think I did in relation to the Old Testament. I genuinely care whether you live a life that corresponds to what I did on Calvary and on Easter Sunday. I genuinely care about you and I have a will for you. Those who commit adultery, it's a way of running around on Jesus. That Jesus takes this false teaching seriously and says, it's, it's not just an idea. Jesus goes, no, it's called adultery. It's cheating. It's infidelity. Jesus is not playing games with you. He's serious about you. 
Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. You see, he holds not only the, the false teacher accountable, he holds the people accountable to what the false teacher taught. So they're required to repent too. It's not just the false teacher that should repent. It's those who were following in it. Unless they repent of her works, and I'll strike her children dead. These were not literal children of infidelity and physical acts of adultery. These children here, spoken of being struck dead, are those who are coming up behind coming up after this false teacher, coming up going, yeah, 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 we're going to continue to presume the grace of God. We're going to continue to live however we want to live, and we're going to just charge it all to the cross. Jesus says, no, I'll strike you dead where you stand. And that image of Jesus striking that's terrifying. And he's the son of God. And demands allegiance to him and him only. And by the way, he himself was stricken. That this reigning king and lord is, and lion is also the one who was humbled, humiliated, stricken, and put to death. As the lamb. So we can't read one image without the other being presented. Jesus wants you to see him that way. What will the result be? The next part of the verse 23 says, and all the churches will know, the churches will know, this will speak to my churches. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. If you go read 1 Corinthians, where some have fallen sick, and ill, and even dead because of how they've treated the Eucharist, the, the communion meal itself, with such blasphemy, with such familiarity, with such lack of reverence. Jesus says this, Paul, Paul's telling the church, this is why some of you are sick and dying. It's like, oh my gosh. This is so serious. Yeah, yeah, Good Friday was real serious. And the resurrection of the dead is really serious. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. This is what is said about Yahweh in Jeremiah 37. I search mind and heart. Here's here's one way theologians think about it. it's called actus purus, meaning this, that God is one pure act. Another way it's said in, is, is that God has no potential. God has no potential. He's not striving for anything. He already is. He already is. He doesn't try to get better. He doesn't try to grow in knowledge, strength, power, glory, who he is. God just is this. He searches mind and heart. He knows all things. And so when Jesus brings this judgment to this church and says, unless they repent, judgment's going to fall just like this. And when it does, the surrounding churches are going to learn 
I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. So now Jesus is saying that there is a reward coming or there is judgment coming for how we live. Go read Matthew 25. By the way, this doesn't show up just in like, whew, man, that's weird. It took him 90 years later to say that in Revelation. He said it in Matthew's gospel, real clear. Matthew 25, as often as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. As often as you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And on that day, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory. And what will he do with his angels? What? He will divide the sheep. He will divide the goats. And the sheep will go into everlasting joy. And the goats will go into eternal destruction. Jesus said that in Matthew 25. He was crystal clear that he is judge. But as Karl Barth reminds us, the judge was judged in our place. That all the wrath that was coming down on us for all of our commandment breaking, Jesus steps in and interposes his blood so that you and I can go free, not in grace abusing, but to actually walk in what it means to be called the children of God and enjoy the light and enjoy walking in holiness. I've known Jesus for 23 years. Here's one thing I've known for sure is that my happiness is directly correlated to my holiness. My happiness is tied to my holiness. Holiness is not about self-righteousness. Holiness is not about tucking your shirt in. Holiness is not making sure that you read the next blog, the next book, the next worship album. Holiness is about falling in love with the God of heaven and going, it's not about being better than my neighbor. Holiness is about just going, I'm falling out of love with this world. And I'm falling in love with you. And it's translating in how I feel and think and live and act among my neighbors. That's what holiness is. And there's an incredible freedom that comes in walking in holiness. No secrets, no sneaking around, no hiding, no posturing. There's incredible freedom that comes in it. Proverbs talks about it, right? Uh, a just man walks in his integrity and his children are blessed after him. Or he who walks in his integrity walks securely when there's no secrets. Oh, that's so good. I got nothing to hide. You, you, wanna, you wanna see where I spend my money? Here you go. You wanna see my, my internet history? Here you go. You wanna see who my friends are on Thursday afternoon? Sure, you can know anything you wanna know. Why? Because there's freedom. That's what God's doing when he's calling us into holiness. He's not trying to put us in jail. He's trying to lead you out into green pastures. Isn't that good? That God has a good plan for you, not to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. Amen. Yes, amen. <laughs> All right. Okay, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So there's a group inside this church that's going, I'm not going that route. I know what God has said about my sex and sexuality. I know what God has said about what I can and can't eat. I know what God has said. And I know the life he's called me to. And I'm not going down that road. I'm not entertaining those philosophies. I'm not entertaining those ideas. I'm not going those places. I'm not running with that kind of crowd anymore. I'm not going that way anymore. Jesus says, he notices the people who are holding fast. And he says, I'm not going to lay another burden on you. 
I'm not gonna like, well, since you're being faithful, may as well just eke a little more holiness out of you, <laughs> like grind you down a bit. He said, I'm not here to lay another burden on you. In fact, that's what I've come to lift, Matthew chapter 11, right? And that what he says? He's the burden lifter. Come to me, all you who are weary. I'll give you rest. You think these persecuted saints in the first century <laughs> were weary? Yeah. You think, come to me. I'll give you rest for your souls. Only do this. Hold fast what you have until I come. So hold on. Cling to it like the side of a mountain. Some of you are rock climbers. Cling to this. And how much room, by the way, I'm no rock climber, but you're like, no kidding, dude, we know. Like, how much room can you fit in a hand that's actually climbing the face of a mountain? Can you put anything else in that hand? Like, no, no, this is it. This is my, my hold. This is it. This is all I got. Jesus says, hold like that. I don't have room for other ideas. I don't have room for other theologies. I don't have room for other philosophies or other relationships that are going to detour me from pursuing him. I don't have room for it. Hold fast like that. Until when? Until I come. And to the one who conquers and who keeps my words, or keeps my works, until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, and this is also a reference to Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus is now, I, I have authority, go into all the nations, right? Uh, this is also from Psalm chapter 2, verses 7, 8, and 9. Go read these scriptures where you see this reigning Messiah. He says, to him who overcomes, to him who conquers, I'm going to give you authority to rule alongside me over the nations. You're going, oh my gosh, did, is that like a misstep or a, a fumbling of words? Who's going to be reigning? Jesus says, I'm going to allow you to enjoy reigning alongside me to him who overcomes. It's not a way of him saying you're going to become part of the Trinity. Don't worry. He's not inviting anybody into that. But it is a way of saying, I'm going to allow you to experience what it really means to be a co-heir. Wow. Is that because we were good? No, we were the ones that put him to death. <laughs> He's that good. He is that good. Wow. Only hold fast. I'll give him authority over the nations, and he'll rule with a rod of iron. This is the Psalm 2. As, as earth and pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from who? From my Father. And I will give him the morning star. What is that? This image is so amazing. This image is so amazing. It comes out of Numbers chapter 4 that, that, that Moses takes note and says, there's going to be a star that rises out of the darkness. The morning star is the star that outlasts all the evil, outlasts all the darkness. Once it's all over, there's still one star still standing. After it's all done, once the darkness is gone, there's a star still shining. What does Jesus say in Revelation 22? To him who overcomes, I will give the morning star. Behold, I am the morning star. 
Revelation 22, Jesus says, I'm this star, meaning I'm the one who's gonna outlast it all. I'm the Alpha and Omega. No one's coming after me. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. What looked like was the end, I triumphed over. And to the one who overcomes, to the one who stays faithful, to the one who holds fast, to the one who perseveres, I'll give him me. That the goal of heaven is not just a star and it's not just a golden street and it's not just a crystal sea and it's not just seeing a throne and it's not angels and it's not just reunion with lost loved ones. Though all of that is going to be unbelievable. The goal of heaven is the king himself. That when you walk into heaven, you will not get a back seat somewhere else and might see Jesus from a, from a distance or across the way. No, you will get time with the very son of God face to face. That's what we're longing for. That's what we look to. That's why we show up and that's why we give. That's why we sing. That's why we preach. That's why we evangelize. That's why we read the scriptures. That's why we practice repentance. That's why we take communion. That's why we, that's why we do what we do. Yeah. Amen. That's why we're doing it. And we're going to keep on doing that until when? Until he comes. And we're going to build up every Christian in this room or in any other church around our city. We don't look at other people as competition. We look at them as image bearers to be loved. That Jesus hung on a cross for, that Jesus died for, that Jesus was resurrected for, and that Jesus has secured their place in the kingdom as they hold fast to. That is so good. So we keep our eyes fixed on this king who's conquered the grave. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the good news of the gospel. We revere you as holy and right and righteous about everything. Would you help us to repent where we need to repent? God, would you help us reflect today and see I'm tolerating some things in my life that I should not be tolerating. Would you show us what those things are? I, I know we already know what they are. Would you help us to repent of what we're, we've been tolerating and to confess that to you and even to confess that to, to someone nearby, uh, maybe a pastor or a spouse or a friend who's walking with you that can, can walk with them through whatever this repentance looks like. Would you continue to grant us repentance, that great gift, and at the same time, send your spirit to comfort, guide and empower us and remind us that we are the sons and daughters of God. Thank you for hearing our prayer today. Jesus, we love you. Amen.